Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Stevens, and this is the Psychology to Live By podcast. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You have a good friend who, unfortunately, is depressed. You love them dearly, and you're mystified. You see clearly they're a wonderful human being. You really rate them. But they think they're worthless, a burden to others and to society. You tell them how great they are, that they're wrong about themselves, but the person clings to their self-hatred. They think you're either being overly kind and exaggerating their virtues or that you lack insight into how they really are, or or both. In part one of Unimproving, I took aim at the self-improvement industry, especially where it's founded on a deep category mistake, confusing our being with our doing. We saw that our being or inherent nature can't be improved upon and our skills, achievements and appearances, though very important, can't be the foundation for lasting happiness and self-regard. So our self-hating friend most likely has become confused. They most likely conflated their inherent being or worth with what they perceive as failures in their doing. So what do I mean by this? Well, for example, most depressions I've seen are instigated by perceived failures in important life domains. Intimate relationships, friendships, work, health, reputation and so on. The person has evidence that they're failing in these and concludes there's something fundamentally wrong with them. For example, someone they love leaves them. They conclude they're unlovable. They have a major setback at work. I'm useless. They become quite overweight. I'm weak. I'm ugly. In the worst depths of depression, they believe their self is beyond repair. Now, in a functional or useful account of depressive feelings, the pain can serve the purpose of motivating us to take action to remedy the problems in our life. Rumination is designed for problem solving and directing subsequent goal-focused action. In other words, non-clinical depressed feelings can be quite adaptive. But when they're misunderstood, when it's, when it's trapped within this mistaking our being for our doing, these depressive feelings run rampant in the mind and the body. The grand delusion, the belief there's something fundamentally wrong inside ourselves turns something potentially helpful into something terribly destructive. So, how do we deal with this disabling negative self-esteem? Well, we take the self part out of it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with improving knowledge and skills. In fact, I'd highly recommend it. Mastering skills and garnering knowledge is inherently exciting and satisfying. It provides joy when done for the right reason and when done in the right way. Watching kids master walking, then their tricycle, and eventually their bicycle, indicates the natural joy of mastery. Learning new things is a lifelong priority for happiness. Becoming fit, losing excess weight, mastering a hobby are all laudable things. But one should not pursue mastery in order to feel better about oneself bolster one's reputation or raise one's self-esteem. 
all of these things happen quite naturally as a byproduct when we do the opposite, when we forget ourselves. When we reduce self-consciousness and self-concern. So, so what I'm saying is that knowledge of the distinction between being and doing is enormously liberating when we apply it in the midst of setbacks and failures. That insight is the foundation for the antidotes that follow because knowledge really does help. Insights can liberate. Part one of Unimproving was all about taking the blindfold off and seeing reality as it is. We already are good enough to be loved by ourselves and by others. Our being will admit of no improvement, but our doing, well, that's another matter. So given this critical insight, what are some practical antidotes to self-improvement? What can we do in order to get better at simply being ourselves? There are many practices and I'll suggest seven. One, we'll start with self-compassion practices. We can counteract the inherent negativity of the grand illusion by persistently practicing kindness and appreciation of our own essential being. This may include gratitude journals or logging one's achievements and skill improvements and seriously prioritizing self-care activities such as massages, catching up with friends, listening to music and so on. Two, we can look to operate more and more with intrinsic motivation doing tasks for the sake of it rather than for some extrinsic reward. Then we don't have to motivate ourselves to do what we should do. We do what already motivates us. This is crucial as we might, if we're not vigilant, even turn activities we love into anxious opportunities for being exposed as deficient or as frauds. Three, we can develop a stronger growth mindset Professor Carol Dweck's useful distinction between a fixed and growth mindset is compatible with what I'm calling the grand illusion. People who think they have fixed attributes, fixed skills and, and fixed abilities become either desperate to improve or desperate to avoid activities that risk failure, thus exposure. They undoubtedly feel they need fundamental improvements. Those with a growth mindset, on the other hand, are much more interested in engagement and learning rather than trying to improve perceived self-deficits. They're interested in process, details on action, and they seek and act on objective feedback so that their performance continually improves and it's driven by curiosity, not by fear. Four, it also helps to frequently take altruistic action. There is a plethora of research that indicates this kind of non-self-concerned action liberates the giver. We're hardwired via natural selection as reciprocal altruists. This means it feels inherently pleasurable to help others and liberates us for a while, at least, from a sense of deficit driven by self-concern. Five. One should measure self-performance against one's own benchmarks. I'd highly recommend James Clear's wonderful book, Atomic Habits, 
that describes what are called marginal gains, daily 1% improvements measured against one's own performance. This is truly liberating and satisfying as it works like compound interest to give us a growing sense of mastery and healthy pride. Six, we ought to dedicate time and effort to aesthetic appreciation, contemplation of nature and of beauty. This also takes us out of self and enhances our sense of interconnectedness and value. We've all had that experience of feeling tiny when gazing upon a starry night or walking through an ancient forest. There's something liberating and renewing about this shrinking of our egoistic universe. Seven. Finally, come to understand your own personality and then really accept it. Do a big five personality inventory and then do three things. Select environments that suit your personality because your personality is not going to change. And then further curate that environment to even more suit you. Thirdly, use the brain's neuroplasticity to gradually practice in adaptations to your environment to accommodate the inevitable mismatches between you and the circumstances that confront you. In summary, I think that genuine happiness derives from the relative lack of self-concern. The one thing I suggest to you in order to be happier is to improve your unimproving. You've been listening to the Psychology to Live By podcast. If you'd like to know more, my website is www.drchris.life. And if you like the podcast, share it with people you like so they can like it too.